Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this special episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with one of the nasty boys, Randy Myers. Hey guys, you ready to let the dogs out? And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone. And today on the program, I sit down with a two-time World Series champ. He's a four-time All-Star and ranks 12th on the all-time saves list. He's one of the nasty boys. Ladies and gentlemen, Randy Myers. Randy, thanks for coming on the program. Thanks for having me, Booney. You got it. And I know this nasty this nasty boys thing, it's it's forever going to be linked to you, but I think it's a good thing. Um, but tell me something. I know all three of you pretty well. Norm the best. I played with Norm, you know, multiple years. Got to play with Dibs a little bit. Uh, yourself and me in, in San Diego. But tell me something I don't know about the nasty boys. Gee, I don't know. It's pretty much all out there. Uh, I think if you look at it, we possibly are the best seventh, eighth, ninth uh, bullpen of all time. And if you look after our togetherness, what we did, we all were closers and uh, a lot of saves and a lot of opportunities after that. So I think people didn't realize, you know, it was we even a lot of times played five inning games. We went, Norm would go two, Dibs would go one, and I'd go one. So we always made Norm do more. He liked to go out there more than we did. But uh, it's just a matter of we went out there and it was winning. You know, we had Lou Pinella, uh, first-year manager over in Cincinnati, and it was, um, you know, let's win games. And we started early and we wired to wired it. Grew up in Vancouver, Washington. Uh, Randy Myers is a kid. I want to hear about uh, – your childhood? Uh, not much. Uh, raised auto part machine shop we owned, and it's going to do that. And high school was, I only played, my senior year of high school, I only played 15 innings. Uh, didn't have a coach that really knew how to use a bench. And um, went to, for auto part machine in, in uh, college, a local Clark Community College here in Vancouver. Uh, and Vern Kent's father had, he was the coach of the baseball team and he had played up to triple a baseball and he was a pitcher. And so he, besides playing outfield and catching and playing first, he had me pitch. So that's kind of, I mean, you pitch a little in little league and all that. I mean, everyone does, but that's where I started pitching. And then, you know, just came up uh, through the Mets minor league system. As a kid, was it always baseball, other sports? Do you have a team? Do you ever dream about being a big leaguer? No, nah, I mean, baseball was just kind of what people played. They played football and baseball, basketball. We didn't play a, little, a lot of basketball. Soccer was just coming around into the States on the West Coast. Uh, no, I mean, it was just sports were something you did when you weren't working or school or, you know, learning. I mean, it was – there's no – we didn't really have a team here. I mean, there was no Mariners. I think our closest team was San Francisco, uh, nothing in the Northwest. So it was, um, you know, just something you played. It wasn't like Texas or, you know, diehard, you know, 30,000 seat high school stadiums. Uh, it was just something you played 
Uh, and even Clark, if Clark went out of baseball team, I wouldn't apply. I would have just did my machinist and art mechanic classes. But uh, that's you know, there's it's like you know, as things happen in life that change your direction all the time, and you know, so having the baseball team and having Coach Ken's father, uh, you know, allowed me to process and then develop uh, better, you know, throughout. Uh, just throwing. I mean, even going back to Dwight Gooden, I mean, Dwight Gooden with the Mets, we started rookie ball together and Floyd Yeomans and Floyd and Dwight pitched. Dwight was third baseman. And when Floyd moved from Tampa to live with his dad, a senior year of high school, Dwight then became the main pitcher. Otherwise, I think Milwaukee Brewers were going to draft him fifth as a third baseman. He goes, you know, number one with the Mets as a pitcher. So, you know, even like that is a guy <laughs> – his buddy moves and he becomes, you know, a major league pitcher. Yeah. And, and no, I know in the upbringing you had, it's, it's so interesting to me because it's not like, Oh, well, I just decided to pitch and you were a 28th round pick. I mean, you, you go the Mets draft in the first round ninth overall in the 82 draft. Uh, you go to the minor leagues and uh, take me through your minor league experience a little bit. You, you end up getting to the big leagues, touching the big leagues in 85. But take me from 82, 85, that first time kind of getting away from home and, and, and being a pro. Yeah, I mean, it was, well, the uh, Cincinnati Reds originally drafted me. They used to have a winter draft. Right, there were two and, drafts. Yeah, and so they originally drafted me, and they said they didn't want me. So anyone that was drafted and not signed – they went into what they called the secondary phase, which was after the primary draft. So I was drafted in the secondary phase by the Mets. Uh, so I fly into Kingsport, Tennessee, um, and I fly out of Portland, Oregon. I mean, it's just across Columbia River uh, up here and fly into Kingsport, Tennessee, and the airport there between Johnson City and Kingsport, and there's one other town. I think it's called Tri-City Airport. But – I mean, it was, we come over these hills and drop in. I'm like, this is a hole. (laughs) (laughs) So Kingsport, my uh, pitching coach said, Randy, you're probably not getting a lot of, uh, I didn't have a lot of experience because a lot of these other guys are pitching year round. And so he said, just, you know, you might do a lot in the pen and you might get 15 innings in. And so um, just, you know, and the one thing about it is, as you all know, is the work ethic. I mean, you know, I was going to be a machinist on mechanic. He works 70, 80 hours a year. I mean, they're drafted the uh, Saturday, why well, flat Saturday, Friday, playing catch with my dad. And he goes, what do you want to do? I go, be a machinist. He goes, well, you always can be. He goes, give five years of your life up, work the same hardness as you would be a machinist and reevaluate. So that's what I did. I mean, you know, working hard was never a problem. It was, you know, putting in the effort, trying to work smart, but um, got in there and ended up leading the team and, Innings, strikeouts, and walks. I think I had something around 70 innings, 71 strikeouts, and 69 walks. So it was uh, – Ed Olson was our pitching coach, and he took us and uh, just said, get out there and learn. So it was really good. We had eight guys from our rookie ball team at some point made the big leagues, which is unheard of. Uh, and I went in, uh, in Columbia, South Carolina. That was the first year baseball was back in Columbia, South Carolina in 83. And we were one play away from winning the title, lost it, uh, went to Lynchburg, Virginia next year, and uh, 
you know, just, I was a starting pitcher and just developing, um, Jackson, Mississippi, and then, uh, Norfolk, Virginia, Tidewater. So it was, um, had good pitching coach. John Cumberland was really good. Had, uh, good managers. One thing, the managers of the Mets, they paid them, I think it was an extra $5,000. And that one thing about, and the Mets, they went through the system. I mean, very rarely did they, their manager come from outside the system because, uh, as people know, once they do that, a manager wants to bring his own bench coach and, and third base coach and things. So you, you know, what does a triple A manager go? He goes, if you, you know, he's thinking in my mind, if you're go outside, I might as well go somewhere else. So they paid more and we had better coaches and they were moving up. They were either going to be on the Met staff or other big league staffs. And that's how it works. So it was, you had, when you got to the big leagues, there was coaches there that had seen you or been part of your development a lot of times throughout. So that was uh, being familiar with uh, the coaches was also a nice thing. And, and, and I don't know, I mean, we, the guys that played that, you know, the, the big league players, they, they know how the minor league works, but it's, you, you look at you, Norm Charlton, Rob Dibble, the nasty was one of the greatest bullpens. If, if you ask Norm, he says, without a doubt, the greatest one, two, three punch in the history of the game, but you all started as, as uh, starting pitchers and, and you, you got formed and you got, you, you kind of morphed into that reliever role. And in your case, that closer role. So, 85, you touch the big leagues for the first time, get your cup of coffee. Uh, 86, you appeared in 10 games. And then 87 is really where, where you got your first. I want to talk about 86, though, a little bit. And, and that transition from starter to relief. Um, some guys say it wasn't a big deal. How was that for you when you, you went from a starting pitcher to a reliever? Yeah, I was in spring training. And, you know, I said, I want to be a relief pitcher. And they say, okay, why? Well, I go, well. We got Dwight Gooden, Sid Fernandez, Ron Darling, Bobby Ojeda, and Rick Aguilera in long relief. Where am I going to break into that rotation? And they were all younger. I think Ronnie D was the oldest. I said, you know, everyone's under, I think it was 28. I said, in the bullpen, there's room there for me. I can be one of the five down there. So they said, okay. And one thing the Mets did is in AAA, we had a left-handed closer and right-handed closer. Uh, and so we either pitched the eighth or the ninth, kind of. And they wanted you to pitch. You had to pitch both sides of the plate. I mean, a lot of times teams have a lefty in AAA that might pitch to one hitter. And it's like, well, if he goes to the big league, he's got to pitch to lefties and righties. So why not let him pitch in the minor leagues and get the experience? I mean, now in the big leagues, they say you got to pitch to three unless you're injured or something, uh, I believe. So uh, three hitters. So I was able to for me, it was easy going over there because, you know, as a starter, you pitch, let's say you pitch it on Monday. Well, Tuesday, you stretch out Wednesday. You're on the side Thursday, you stretch out either in a game Friday and four man rotation, or you stretch out again, you're pitching on Saturday. Well, as a reliever, it wasn't a big deal. I mean, I could go out there and, you know, grab two, three innings. I mean, not a big deal at all. So, uh, that I got experience. I got called up at the all-star break. In 86, actually, I was sitting in Houston at my hotel because they called me up before the All-Star game, which was in Houston. So I ended up renting a, getting a cab and playing catch against the wall at the local school because I couldn't go to the ballpark. And then once the All-Star game was over, we went in, had the day off, and, and played. And then I they sent me down, and that's one thing kind of, you know, 
However, it is as we were like six games up in AAA. Well, back then, you know, a lot of money is made, you know, with them AAA teams, postseason and stuff, and you know, the independent. I mean, you know, the minor leagues because they're owned by the uh, someone in the community. And so we were. They sent me down before the trade deadline. It used to be August thirty first. We were a couple of games out, so we ended up making the playoffs. And then they called me after the playoffs back up for September. So it was. Uh, Kind of like, why am I being sent down? And, well, you know, they called someone else up, which is fine. But it's just like there's a lot of good players at, at the right place at the right time. Or back then they would hold players down sometimes uh, in the minors instead of bringing them up because they're good enough to play in the big leagues, but the people, they didn't have a roster spot for them. And so back then there was the seven-year minor league free agency type thing with the 40-man roster was – I don't know what all the rules are now. So um, got called up and was there and uh, had the Davey said to me, and I was in instructional league for uh, every year. Instructional league was uh, through November, uh, like 15th. Uh, it was after the season. So he said, you want to stay up here? Because I was on the 30 man major league roster. And one thing about the major league roster is once they pulled someone off for, because it was just the, uh, East against the West, and those two teams played, and the winner of that played in the World Series. So he said, "You're on the, tw- but we got a 25, and do you want to just stay up here?" And I go, "Want to go to instructional league and and be ready?" So I was ready down there, and almost got called up. There was a, an injury uh, to the 25 men roster, and he called and said, "Do you want to come up for the World Series?" And I said, "I'm throwing down here because if someone gets injured, you can pop them, and someone's got to be able to replace it." So instead of sitting around, uh, I was down there, but. It just uh, led it to the next year. You mentioned Davey Johnson. I, I played for Davey in, in Cincinnati in the mid-90s. Uh, talked to him recently. He's coming on the program in a few weeks. And, I, you know, throughout my career, I get to play for some pretty cool – Pretty, pretty cool managers, pretty high profile. I got to play for Bruce Bochy, who I absolutely loved. Uh, played for Bobby Cox, uh, Mike Hargrove, and and the one and only Lou Pinella, who who goes down as my favorite all time. You know, and and uh, uh, we had him in select. Cincinnati. We had him, but you know, I think back about it, and my time in Cincinnati with Davey Johnson, we had. Davey and myself, man, we butted heads. I think we were both second basemen and, and we'd have back and forth and he would push my buttons. And man, I, I used to get so mad at him. And then I left when I left Cincinnati Reds, he was no longer my skipper. And I went through my career a little bit and then I ended up looking back and, and realizing what Davey, he, he, there's a brilliant, there, there's a brilliance to Davey Johnson and, and he just knew what to do. He knew by getting getting under my skin and getting me a little angry, I'd play better. But he also knew uh, I had some teammates that that wouldn't work for them. And, and you know how that is, Randy, playing for so many years. It's like certain guys you got to kick in the butt and certain guys you got to give a hug. Davey Johnson was unbelievable at that. And it, it didn't I didn't appreciate it until I until I grew up a little bit and got a little more experience. But I'm looking forward to to having him on a few weeks. Uh, that 86 team, there were some characters on that team. That 30 and 30 just came out. I haven't watched it yet, but uh, you had Doc, who we had on the program here, Strawberry, Gary Carter, uh, Davey Johnson was your skipper. Uh, what do you remember about that year in, in that group of guys? I think one of the things that I was uh, 
that they really haven't done, you know, like lately, and a lot of teams don't. But when I got called up, they had a veteran that had to take, and you were under their wing. Now, Straw, Carol Strawberry, Straw took me. Well, he knew I started out with Dwight, and everyone thought I was a little off-center. I mean, they still do, but uh, – and not saying that's a bad thing either. But uh, so what happened was is the veteran had to put money on the table – so if the rookie or younger guy screwed up, they paid for it. Now, Wally had Lenny. He just put the money there and let me know when I run out. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> And you're next to him in the locker room. So I was able to learn from veterans. Keith Hernandez was unbelievable as one of our leaders. Uh, and we had different ones at different places. You know, we, I mean, Jesse Roscoe in our bullpen was our closer. And so the veterans – you know, looked after the younger guys and the younger guys kind of got in line. It was never, if, if I got out of line, straw, you know, took the heat. Well, uh, it just never happened. You respected what it took to get to the, the big leagues and you wanted to stay. I mean, when you're at the big leagues, every one of the minors want your job. When you're in the minors, you want that guy's job in the big leagues. So I've, I've played with people that since that team and that I get to the big leagues, Hey, I'm successful. Well, that might be for you and your goal, but it's one thing to get there. It's another thing to stay there. I mean, as you well know, the, you know, people don't understand flying, uh, getting on a plane at midnight, flying, rolling into a town at three or four, oops, bags delayed, uh, sleeping at the clubhouse because you got a day game, uh, doing all the, and then getting a little tweak of an injury and all night you're doing treatment to try to be ready the next day. Uh, you know, and so with the Mets is we jumped out to a big league, but it was, it was throttled down. There was no holding back. It was, can we get this to 10 games? Can we get to 15? Can we get it to 20? And it was, but no one, it really seemed like had a career year. Everyone was just doing what they could do as a team and it was about, you know, just getting the victories. You know, that's one thing which I, when I talk to ball players and stuff is you, uh, teams that are always below five, you know, below 81 wins and teams above 81 wins, it's a different mentality. You know, if, you're, if your team's used to win 90 games, bullpen blows a save, don't worry, we'll just score, run, and win. But if you're below 500 as a team all the time, and it's like, oh, we both say, oh, here it goes again. So the mentality was, well, we're winning. I mean, came from, you know, and most of the players came through the minor leagues from the Mets. And so it was, you had that winning attitude every long, every way along the way. And you had coaches that you're familiar with. So it just made it to where it wasn't, I mean, Straw, he was, you know, in Kingsport, Tennessee a few years earlier. So it was, it was about, you know, let's go and win, and we know how to win, and, you know, strap it on. I mean, there might have been a little bit of uh, extracurricular activities after a game, but, you know, you win the game, and you know what it takes to be ready the next day. I think you make a great point about the um, being a young player, being a rookie, respecting the big leagues. 
I just had a conversation with someone recently about this. I said, when I got called to the big leagues, my, my hair was on fire and it's like, all right, I just got finished my triple A season. I kick butt and I'm in the big leagues and I got to prove to these guys. I haven't proved it at this level yet. I proved it throughout the minor leagues, but this is where I've been, I've been reaching for my whole life. And I'm here. It was almost, you know, when I came in, I came to the big leagues in 1992, but it was a, uh, Sit down, shut up, speak when spoken to, and bust your butt from 7 to 10 every night. And, and you mentioned Straw took you under his wing. I had guys. I had a Chris Bazio and, and a Jay Buner mm-hmm. that were keeping keeping me in line. And and it was, it was. It was a respect thing. You had to earn your stripes. And it's almost like as a rookie, when you finally prove yourself, when you finally establish yourself as a major league player, it's like, wow, that was really hard. But I learned a lot going through that, and 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 it was worth something to me. Like, wow, that's just, they don't just hand this to you. You prove yourself, and then you prove yourself again. And uh, you know, I don't know if we necessarily see that as much in in today's game. It, the one thing about today's game is, man, we're just seeing a plethora of unbelievably talented young players that I just look out there on a daily basis. It's, you know, Acuna or Tatis or Vladimir, Vladimir uh, Guerrero Jr. Or, or a lot of those Toronto Blue Jays, uh, Bo Bichette. And man, there's just so many at such a young age, putting up huge numbers, you know, Soto, Devers. Uh, so the talent is, you really can't argue with it, but, but how, uh, Randy Myers and Brett Boone got to the big leagues and what it was like then, it, it's a little bit different. Now I see guys coming to the big leagues. They already got their name on their shoe. Man, it took me 10 years to get my number, Nike to stitch my numbers on the back. So it's a little bit different. Um, but yeah, definitely, definitely what we went through. And, and I loved your point of, of you got to respect the big leagues because it is, it, it's, not everybody gets gets to to make it there, and and uh, I don't know. I enjoyed my time because I felt like I really earned my stripes, and it was a cool time. But that's you know that's that's just me. Eighty seven. Yeah. Well, I'm, go ahead. Oh, what I was going to say is, you know, on that, you know, sit down and shut up. A lot of places are that, but Davey Johnson was never that way. Davey came to me and he said, "If you have any idea." If you see something different, I want you to hear it because you're in the big leagues and you're different. I mean, it seems like now, I'm not saying everyone, but like they want everyone to be the same. You know, you hit the same, you do this the same. Back when we played, it was all different. Everyone was different. You came as a team. So I would come with an idea and he goes, how do you see it that way? He wanted to know Davey and Lou Pinella did the same thing, is how you see it because you might, your perspective might be different than everyone else. I mean, I was a left-handed reliever throwing, you know, 94, 95. And when they did the charts, I said, give me the charts of the left-handed relievers throwing 94, 95. So I would, you know, cause they would say, well, this guy struck out on a curveball on a lefty. The guy's throwing, you know, 80 miles an hour. So Norm Charlton is ones I looked at on charts when he was with Cincinnati and I was with New York uh, later on. But we had, if you look at our teams, you know, even in 98 in San Diego, everyone was different, but brought together. It did, they never no one. It seemed like everyone to stamp everyone. You all do the same thing. Um, so that was something I think that is different when we played compared to what 
people are doing now. And, you know, the names you mentioned of the people like Toronto and stuff, it seems like Toronto lets people be themselves. And, and I think I, I, you see that atmosphere too, you know, when, when you're able to be yourself, there's a bunch of different guys. They're all pulling on the same end, end of that rope though. And they're smiling and they're having fun and they all do it a different mm-hmm. way, but they all get it done and they all get it done at a high level, man. It, and I'm sure you've been on some teams like that. I sure have been on some teams like that where don't question it. Just let it roll because, because you don't get teams that, that have that cohesiveness and that, uh, that I, I don't know. I used to, I used to think that that team chemistry, Oh, that's just, uh, that's just something people like to say when a team's really gelling. Well, in 2001 with, with the Seattle Mariner team that I played on and we won all those games, I, I believed in team chemistry and I believe that, no, you don't just have to have the greatest players of all time. There's, there's something about a team that works together and that 25th man is pulling on the same end of that rope as that superstar that hits in the middle of the lineup or that superstar starter or that superstar closer. So I think there, there, there definitely is something to that. Uh, 87 is basically your first full year. 88 is when you become the closer and uh, you put up a 172 ERA. You, you uh, save 26 games, 89, 20, 24 saves. And then you get traded to the Cincinnati Reds uh, for that unbelievable. You get p- traded for uh, John Franco, who is, by the way, a nemesis of mine. I couldn't get a hit off that guy. And it seemed like every time he'd throw me that split, I, I know he didn't call it a split. Whatever that pitch was, is low and away. Man, they call it a strike. And I turn to that umpire and go, God, that's not a strike. But anyway, you got traded for him. And and you go to that Cincinnati Reds team, that 1990 team that was that was unbelievable. Against all odds, you sweep the 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 big you know the big bad Oakland A's with with the Bash brothers and Eckersley and Ricky and Stu on the mound with Bobby Welsh and and uh, you kind of shocked the world and and, um, and swept them in that World Series. Take me through that that 1990 season. And and I want to talk about you, Norman Dibbs, and how it all started. And I, I see by doing my research, you had the majority of the saves that particular year. But how did it go in the bullpen? When you got that phone call, it was like, who's going to close tonight? Or it was pretty much you each knew your role in that 90 season. Well, the one thing is, is people don't realize we were in lockout in the 90 spring training. And uh, Lou called, and um, uh, I had talked to someone that knew him. Uh, Lou called, and and I said, we need to uh, call everyone, because we knew when they started spring training, we had about three weeks of spring training. That's what was coming through. So Lou called every player, and he said, I want you three weeks away from regular season and hold that, because we don't know when spring training is going to start. And we're going to jump out ahead of everyone. Well, went to spring training and I'm going in the first time I'm over in Plant City, Florida. And because uh, I was with the Mets, so we were in Florida. We were in St. Pete and then we were over in uh, Port St. Lucie. But I get there and I see Norman Dibbs throwing. I'm like, okay, <laughs> uh, no problem. And so it was, uh, they came to me and said, hey, you know, it's, you know, any of the crap that goes on, we'll take care of it. And your job just to pitch tonight. Well, 
we were all not wanting to pitch. I mean, it was like, call down there, have him get in there. You know, why do I want to go work? <laughs> I want to sit in the bullpen. <laughs> so uh, we started the 90 season, and as Norm says, we're in Houston because we didn't – the games always used to start in Cincinnati. That was the first game. Well, because of the lockout, or the lockout where they locked the players out as we uh, started in Houston. So I think it was the first game is Davis – the big power here got hit. I think Browning started. He got three times, twice by him and once by me. I mean, it was a slider and he stands there. Uh, but they were saying after the game, Norm's looking at the speed charts. Uh, and they were, and I think Norm pitching dibs. They were complaining because I only struck one guy out. So they were saying I was ruining the, the stats for the strikeout tinning ratio for the bullpen. But uh, they were saying, well, you know, they said you're hitting Davis, so we're going to get that. And Norm goes, 98, 97, 96, 98, 99. He goes, hey, if you want to do that, you know, those are pretty nasty pitches. Let's, uh, we'll, we're ready to go to war. So that's kind of where the nasty boys started uh, with Norm and went through the, I mean, it was wire to wire. We were jumping games. I always believe, and Lou even agreed, Davey, the same thing is April games are more important than July games. Everyone says a win and a win. No, because if you're five games up going in July, they will trade players to help your team. If you're five games down, they will trade some of your players to help other teams. And so, and when we got ahead, people had to chase us. I mean, if we lost two out of the three, we've only lost one game in the standings to them. So we um, played as a team, and I don't think anyone had a career year. Uh, it was same thing kind of as the Mets. We played – uh, as a team, you know, it was like I, a couple of years ago, I ran to Larko. You're in the hall, right? I mean, I believe you are, but I never seen, he was just my shortstop, you know, Eric Davis, uh, you know, right down the line is, I mean, I had Joe Oliver who the, the first, uh, game, uh, in Cincinnati that I pitched, that was the first time I believe I threw to Joe. It was either him or Jeff Reed because Reedy would come in out of the bullpen with us. And so it was, I believe it was Joe. And he goes, hi, uh, Joel. I go, Randy Myers. How you doing? He goes, what do you pitch? I go, uh, one, two backdoor sliders. He says, okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, it was, a, well, okay, there's my catcher. Uh, but we, uh, everyone played and it was manufactured runs. We didn't have a lot of save opportunity. I mean, back, you know, when we mentioned uh, 88 and 89, there's only 29 opportunities. That was kind of the era where it was still, not a lot of opportunities, and then it started blowing up. But as you well, like when you played, you get a two-run lead, all of a sudden it's like we're going for doubles and home runs, and you can, you know, you got a good bullpen. It's let's jump on this, and all of a sudden you became a four- or five-run lead, and there's no save opportunity. So it was um, we just played every game to, you know, to win. We were, I think, 10 up at the Oscar break. where We lost a couple starters. So Norm actually, what people don't realize, Norm went and was a starter the second half of 90. So we got, I think San Francisco came in. We were like three games up. We ended up taking two out of three or whatever, and they never caught us. But we got in September and Lou was talking, uh, I was talking to him and one of the coaches. He says, you know, I said, well, when's Norm coming? It was like the 10th of September. I go, when's Norm coming back to the bullpen? Because well, I'm thinking about starting him. I said, well, do you want him in the playoffs one game out of four? Or do you want him available four games out of four? And when I said, Norm, you're back to the path. So, uh, because we knew with Norm down, there was five inning games. I mean, oh, one of the games in Houston, uh, we were up one to nothing. They got a guy on first base in the fifth inning. Might have been that game where I, uh, with Davis. 
and they bunted a guy to second for one out. Now one nothing lead in the fifth. They a fly ball. He went to third and then got out. And then yeah, that was I think the Davis game where Norm came in for two divs, one and me one. And it, we knew then we're playing, and the guys knew. I mean, you talked to Larkin stuff as Ed or Davis Ed, but it was we play five innings, and after that we're going for stats. But it was hit and runs, and you know move a runner over, and if they had a shift on, hit the other way, and it was manufacture runs and go out there and win. And and you did what you could to make the team win. It wasn't about personal stats. I mean, even playing with you, it wasn't about personal stats. It was, I mean, think about, you know, I'm not, you know, the shift. If they had a shift on you, you'd hit 400 hits to right field. I mean, think about Tony Gwynn. We're going to put a shift for pole. You'd have an August, a guy go, well, Tony's about ready to get his 400th hit today, hitting the left field. I mean, it was about winning the games. And that's what we did. And we went in. The big thing with uh, – we knew with Pittsburgh, we were matched up right with them, and they had an unbelievable roster. And the feeling we had with the Pittsburgh guys was whoever won ours was going to beat Oakland. And Oakland was tough. I mean, they were unbelievable. I mean, talent up and down the line. But we knew how to manufacture runs. And it wasn't – it wasn't you doing anything out of the ordinary. It's what you did every game. And so – we ended up beating Pittsburgh in six, and then with Oakland, I think the big swing there was in the first inning, we were at home, and Eric hits a two-run homer off uh, Stu. And Jose Real was pitching. He goes, well, I know I got to go five. And we knew at that point, you know, kind of like, here's our guy, one of our best and your best, and we got you out of the shoot. So it was just, you know, it was the big series was unbelievable with Pittsburgh. I mean, that was unbelievable and uh then with oakland you know you get a couple wins on the team that's supposed to win and it puts more pressure on them so you know we were lucky we got him in game four we lost eric davis he drove his uh elbow and threw into his kidneys and had lacerated kidney and we lost billy atcher to a broken hand uh the two guys that came in and replaced him were the guys that helped manufacture the two runs for us to win but we knew it was like that game we were and coming off the bench, it was Davy Johnson and Lou Pinnell both had a good philosophy. Their bench guys, they wanted about 200 at-bats off them. So that, and so that's, they always got that, the guys, so that they were ready to go. And, you know, the guys came in and were ready. We were still confident, but we knew that if we lost that game, I mean, when it happened, you know, it's like, okay, guys, let's kick it and try to win this because the confident level of Oakland would have went up with not having um, – you know, uh, ED or, or Hatch, but we knew we had Glenn Braggs and we had, um, Herm Winningham that could handle the load, but we knew their confidence was going to go up. And so we got them, you know, scored a couple of runs and Glenn Braggs broke up a double play and we got the lead. And then uh, he decided to pull Jose out and put, uh, Jose Rio out and put me in. And so, and when I came in, it was either, Dibs was going to face Harold Baines or I was going to face Jose Canseco because Harold was the DH that game. Well, Harold was kicking our butt. And so it was, I think, more we didn't want to face uh, Harold uh, than because it was like everything he threw up there. He was sitting, in fact, I played with him in Baltimore. It was the same thing. It was like, yeah, uh, unbelievable talent. And so, you know, went in there and got a couple outs and we won the series. Yeah, Harold Bates. Yeah, I, the naysayers when he got elected to the Hall of Fame. I said, 
are these guys watching the same player I watch? Because I remember, you know, I didn't get to see Harold his entire career, but I, I saw a decent amount of at-bats. And I said, this guy is an unbelievable hitter. And they, the questions that come out, they baffle my mind. I'm like, the, I think he had 16 or 1,700 ribbies. I think he had like 28, 27 or 2,800 hits. This dude could rake. And he was like a 297 career. I mean, don't quote me on that, but Harold Baines was a hell of a player. And uh, yeah, you make mention of that, of that series. And he was the guy Harold that you were Baines. kind of pitching around. Like Harold we don't want Baines. to face him. Yeah. Harold Baines could, he would take one of the ugliest hacks on a ball. I seen in Baltimore. I said, you're not fooling anyone. Sure enough. They would throw him the exact same pitch and he would hit it over the fence. I'm like, don't they notice this? <laughs> yeah. Anytime you take a crappy a hack, player. throw them a different pitch. <laughs> yep. Yep. Uh, you mentioned ED and uh, Lark. I got to play with both of them. I played with Spuds too, but this is after, uh-huh. you know, Spuds was a, Chris Sabo was a, uh, he, he was a, he was a platoon player at the, at the time that I got to play with him, but uh-huh. you got to play with him, uh, you know, in 90 when he was, he was the man and he was an all-star as the third baseman. I just wanted to ask you about how good of a player was Eric Davis? And, and if he would have stayed away from injuries, how good he could have been. And then I want you to just speak to, to spuds a little bit and, and the type of player, what he brought to that nineties team. Well, ED to me is a hall of fame player. And I view the Hall of Fame different than a lot of people. Now, i got to remember back when we played, American League did not play with National League. The only time they seen each other besides the World Series was the All-Star game. And so you had reporters that were voting on people that they never saw. They would talk to other reporters I knew, but to me, the Hall of Fame should be, were you one of the best of the area? Were you feared by other players? You know, did you deal with the media halfway decent? Uh, did stats you put up, did you put up small time stats and did you put up, you know, year stats as being the best while you played? Five years later, are they close to the same? Well, ED was one of them guys is don't throw to. I mean, it was, we always had, you know, two or a couple guys out of the lineup, you didn't let them beat you. And so it was, uh, Eric was one of those guys who played against them and then played with them and it was, quick hands. I mean, I think probably the quickest hands I ever seen was Gary Sheffield. I mean, Sheff, when I played with him in 92 in San Diego, he got in there and they were just boom and he could roll them. But ED was like, it looked like he had that long stride, but he would pick the ball out of the catcher's glove and had a home run to to left being a right hand. I mean, he could just snap them hands and defensively was unbelievable. And he was, he seen the game differently. It was one of them guys that could pick up little things. I mean, when I played with Robbie Alomar in Baltimore, Allie, uh, Robbie could take and if you tweaked as a pitcher, he could tell what sign it was. And he would like, I mean, it was just your hands, your movement, your glove, your foot. But ED was, he seen the game differently. He could anticipate. He could, when you threw a pitch when he was in center and even in left, based on how the hitter stride, he was already gone. Uh, Willie Wilson, who I played with in 93 at the Cubs, was the same way. They just saw it differently. It was, and to just sit and watch them, uh, it was unbelievable. Straw was like that when I played with him in, in New York. It was just unbelievable. And, and, you know, Spuds, I mean, 
you know, he's a, a red rear end. I don't know if you can say the other word, but he wanted to win. Want. I mean, I, I think he had 27 or something home runs, and except for like twice, and he bunted the next time up. He was, if the guys are playing behind the base, I'm going to bunt for a base hit and try to steal second. So it was about winning games. and But him and Paul O'Neill were locker room mates. Now them two, they just wound up each other. Both of them were a uh, little high strung when it come before and after games. So I think Lou just kind of, I was on one side of them. Them two were next to each other. And then on the other side, we had kind of like a horseshoe, um, an L. Uh, bracket type and uh, was dibs and norms. So it was just like, we're looking across at each other and go, you know, we're the calm ones in this corner. So we never had a lot of players or coaches come down to that area. So that was pretty nice. The uh, 1991 season, and we get to this, you, you come through the minor leagues as a starter. You're the cl- you're, you've been closing now for a few years in the big leagues, winning the world, winning the World Series. Now in '91, just like the previous year, you said they they experimented with Norm. They make you a starter. Now whose whose idea was that? Well, that was my idea. We uh, before we uh, left on the plane, I said and uh, the bus, I said, guys, here's the thing: we got from January one to February. Uh, 14th, we got 45 days there. And I learned this in New York. So I'm telling from experience, they're going to want you to fly in for appearances. You're going to lose three days of training. So every time you fly in, you're going to lose three days, which is one fifteenth of your training. And the parents says, you know, they're making a couple thousand dollars. We didn't make a lot of money back then compared to today, but it was, you know, so they might pay you 5,000. It's good money, but don't get hurt. Well, we ended up having a lot of injuries. I mean, with the players and stuff that year, and we lost four starters to injuries. So I'm sitting down there twiddling my thumbs. And it's like, why don't I start? I said, I can get, I can get a six strong. So, you know, I can went and uh, started the second half and was actually batting pretty good and playing good. So one of the things that, you know, didn't get, always get the wins losses, but I was, you know, quality starts. And I think that they averaged two point two runs a game and I was 0.5 of them or 0.8. So it was like, I like to hit and stuff. I had no problem with that. And actually in 97 in Baltimore, when Ray Miller became our pitch coach, if we didn't get Jimmy keys from uh, New York, he was going to put me as a starter, even though I had almost 300 saves. And because he was a Pittsburgh pitching coach when I was pitching against him. Uh, and he said, no, Randy can start no problem at all. So, uh, because it went in 91, he was a pitcher coach for Pittsburgh. So it was uh, just, you know, trying to help the team win. I mean, we could have sat down there and did nothing. Dib was getting more of the saves because back then the setup guys didn't get paid a lot. And Dib said, Randy, nothing personal, but I got to argue and stuff to close because that's how I'm going to make money. So I'm like, hey, I can't hold it against you. Back after the season, I told – we were trying to negotiate, and I said, pay – sign Dibs to a four-year deal – two and a half a year, sign Norm to a four-year deal, two and a half a year, sign me for three a year and uh, for four years and lock us in. And then they go, well, that's, you know, we're, who we got seven and a half. Who we got, else are we going to pay? We go, we don't care. Keep the same bolt then, the rest of us. But it was the setup guys didn't make a lot of money back then. And so it was one of the things is when we got injured, you know, with the starters, I said, and, you know, let me start. And so they did. And it was – you know, st- wins and losses wasn't good, but, you know, I did, gave my best, which is all they could ask. 
we know the routines that are different, but by being a pen guy versus being a starter starter, you know, nowadays you're, you're one th- once every fifth day and you've got your, your routine that you do in between starts reliever. You got to be ready to go a lot yeah, as a starter. You can go golfing for two days, but for you personally, what was tougher going from a closer to a starter or starter to a closer? Um, Neither really. I mean, in 91, when I went to a reliever, I said, you mean I can pound weights for four days and uh, just not have to worry about it? Uh, starter, how they took us was it didn't – I knew coming in from AAA, I was going to go to long relief. I mean, very rarely does a closer go from AAA to the big leagues. But by being able to pitch an inning, give or take, you know uh, – that helped me a lot. And pitching the next day wasn't a big deal. I mean, you're used to throwing 130, 140 pitches, uh, you know, pitch two days in a row. It's like, you don't even break a sweat. So, but they're totally different. You know, one is you got to be ready for that. I mean, now if you threw 130 pitches, they'd be, you know, taking the manager's head uh, off. And, you know, not every pitch is the same. Yep. By eight runs, you're throwing fastballs at about 90%. It's different than a one-run game where every pitch is a nutcracker and you're, um, you know, you can't give up a hit. Uh, so for me, it was really neither or. Uh, it was just, you know, go ahead and tell me what I need to do. I mean, and I did it to the best I could. 92, you get traded to the Padres at your first time through uh, San Diego, 38 saves that year. And then you sign, uh, I think you sign a three-year deal with the Cubs, so 93, 94, mm-hmm. 95. 94, 95, you're an all-star both years. 1993, 53 saves. Uh, I want to hear about uh, your time in Chicago playing at Wrigley. I know as a as a hitter, I used to, you know, a lot of hitters, especially when you were visitors, either love or you hate Wrigley. And we usually love it or hate it by whether that wind's blowing in or out. But if you're the you're there, you're the home team pitching in that yard. Um, is it different mentally for you? Because you know when it's blowing out, you, you pop the ball up, it's gone. You know when it's blowing in, you got to hit it twice. But as a pitcher, was there any different mentality you took? Because you had a lot of success in Chicago for those three years. Well, I think uh, Dan Plezak said it right. When the wind's blowing in, every reliever is ready to pitch. When it's blowing out, there's a lot of soreness going on in the pen. So it was, keep the starter out there. It's fine. Uh, Now, it was one of the things that, I mean, I'm not going to get in the analytics and all that, but one of the things that we were able to switch, and I was able to try to get some stats on is, a lot of times Chicago was a family trip. And for those that don't know, a family trip is where, Normally one trip a year, the family, uh, the wives, girlfriends get to go, sometime the kids, and they go on a trip. Well, Chicago was one of the places. New York was another one. And I learned it from New York is if it's a family trip, is the player getting the same sleep, the same rest, the same pattern that he's normally in? Because if he's not, that can give you an edge. And we had 93, we had a guy come in, and I think he was eight for 12, five homers, three doubles. And uh, uh, Rick Wilkins, it was 93, he said, okay, we're going to pitch this guy in. I said, okay, you've seen something I didn't. Well, we got him, and we either struck him out or he ground out. Well, what happened was is his family was in. He did get to sleep, got to the ballpark late and all that, and he couldn't hit anything but away. So 
using that, it was a plus. The minus was, you know, the wind blew out a lot. <laughs> so it was uh, tough. But in, that's when we had the strike in the 94. But I had three managers in three years. And uh, Jim uh, Lefevre, the first year, is it was, you know, hey, we need to win. And, um, you know, I had the 53 saves. But it was when we were out of it, I said, let whoever pitch it. And he goes, look, I'm going to get fired. I need to win at least 82 games to be a 500 manager. We guys kick it up in September. So Rhino, Ryan Sandberg, Gracie, and myself, and Morgan, we're all like, good to go. So I think, I, I don't know if I stole the record. It was like 12 saves in September, which uh, it was, we're out there and just going at it. And so that's where got the 53. But as a bullpen, we won the uh, Rolex reliever of the, of the year as a bullpen, and that was good. But it was damn pleasing. Like you said, wind's blowing out. You know, a lot of storms are in the bullpen. <laughs> and and that's that's so true. And and you said from from a statistical standpoint, how to get an edge. I always thought that about the guys that played in Chicago. And this is, you know, especially before they put the lights in. And I just thought a big league season is set up for 162 games. And and we're kind of programmed to go to the ballpark and play seven to 10 and get to bed late and sleep in. That's how we're programmed as a big league player. Unless you play in Chicago in, in the eighties and, and early nineties, because that changed because now you've got mm-hmm. day games every day. And I would always tell people, I said, you can't, you can't win the world series in Chicago. Why? Because they play too many day games and it wears you down after a while. Cause as soon as you go on the road, you got to flip your schedule and everything's a night game. And then you go back home and it's all day games. So so I, I always thought we had an edge as an opposing uh, team, especially the teams in the division, just because of the schedule that that Chicago had. It's changed since then, a lot more night games. So it's a, a little bit more on the same wavelength. But I th- always thought that was interesting and that you brought up the fact that you're right. I remember because those wives love to go shopping in Chicago. But you're right. I, I never thought about that. Most of the teams, and it seemed like the opposing teams I was on in those years uh when I was in the national league was yeah, that, that team, that, that family trip nine times out of 10, no matter what team I was on was Chicago. Cause of that, cause of the shopping. Um, well, absolutely. Right. It was kind of the West Co- the West coast teams. Uh, sorry about that. The West coast teams, Chicago, but everyone in the Midwest, it was New York. And so um, it was, uh, here's a going back to straw story is one thing about also Chicago is a lot of people, family and stuff visited and i'm like you're going out till uh 10 o'clock 11 o'clock at night i mean i was normally in bed by 10 because i got up went to the stadium worked out etc but we had with new york a straw guys would want to take straw or straw rake in chicago well then we had a, a game and straw didn't go out and he went oh for four so davy made me take straw out to at least 10 <laughs> o'clock and i was yeah. like He's at the hotel. He goes, nope, got to go. He goes, otherwise, I'm fine. We're going. And then he did good the next day. But it was like people thought, oh, you get straw. He goes, he's from New York. <laughs> he's <laughs> the used m- to mentality it. of the Chicago people. But, yeah, it was uh, a different ballgame. But, you know, the one thing about it is is too many times I think they're turning managers over too quick because when you're on a team that's not used to winning, you know, my, my, when I went to Chicago and I said three years, what are you going to want to do? I go, if we can get to the playoffs, that's unbelievable. But, you know, if we're over 80 wins, that's great. If we're over then 86, 87, and then we go over 90, if we can accelerate that, that's unbelievable. 
but you have to get to where you're winning and then you pick up them four or five extra games a year just by playing as a winner. And it was three managers in three years. Good, you know, nothing against the managers. And, you know, they were good. And pitch coach were good. But it was, for me, that was unbelievable. It's like, wow, it's we got to change every year. And now a new philosophy is coming in. All right, before we get out of Chicago, we got to talk about the 95 season. Uh, you give up the homer to Mouton. And mm-hmm. out of nowhere – from the bleachers of Wrigley Field, only Wrigley Field, uh, you get attacked by a fan. I, I, I saw it many times, uh, you know, back in the day when it happened. You took them down pretty easily. But uh, what's going through your head? That's very rare well, for a player to get attacked on the field, some guy coming at you. You know, I, I've been on the field a million times where you have that guy, it's a seventh inning, they're drunk, they put money into a can, and they say, hey, run onto the field, you know, security gets him. He doesn't usually come close to you. But to have somebody coming at you, take me through that. Well, when I gave it the home run, I'm looking for another ball, and the ump uh, was, you know, all of a sudden I saw in my corner eye someone coming, so I – step back and he zigzags to me. I'm going, okay, this is going to get interesting. And he came over the mound right at me. Well, my thing was, I'm going to break him before he hits the ground. That's, but as he came in, his hand slid down around his waist. And then I thought knife or gun. So it was clear as hands. And I just flipped him over and the guys all grabbed him and, you know, it's kind of over, but it's just one of them reaction things. And it was, uh, you're not waiting for it. Well, then the next hitter, which Brian Hunter was up with Houston. Well, Brian is from Vancouver. I actually helped him train at Fort Vancouver High School. And he comes up and he ends up getting a hit. And then I'm mad at him at first base for getting the hit. And he's like, <laughs> not my fault. So it was a story within a story. But we ended up winning that game in extra innings. You know, it's like, how do you do that? It was we got lucky, but yeah, it was guy comes over and zigzags towards you. And, you know, first thing you're thinking about is my thing is the safety of my teammates and myself, myself, you know, but you don't know what this guy's going to do. And like the one in Chicago, the white Sox where the two guys jumped the first base coach. It was, yeah. Beat him know, up. Yeah. I mean, if you did that, that, that kind of surprised me. I mean, if, if you're, if I got an opposing player and two people are going at him, I'm sorry, but I'm helping the, my my former player. Uh, you know, the two guys jump him. It surprised me there wasn't like six or seven guys surround them two real quick. Uh, right. But it was, uh, you know, the one thing is, I mean, even teammates, I've told people before, you know, you want to do something in the off season, go be at it. But right now he's my teammate. Uh, it ain't going to happen. It ain't flying. Uh, you know, there's that brotherhood that you have. I mean, I consider baseball kind of, and it used to be, we call it like the United Nations. We have people from all over the world. I mean, more so now, but it was, you know, um, had Augie Garcia roommate in 83 in Columbia, South Carolina. One thing the Mets also did going, I mean, we're going way back, uh, through what we were talking about, but they had the Latin players with the, uh, American players. Because and they did uh, English speaking uh, classes in, in spring training, and it was to get them more accustomed to be comfortable. And like Augie, a guy was talking Spanish, and uh, he was like, "What's he saying?" He goes, "Randy, there's 3,500 dialects of Spanish. I don't know." He goes, "We had to catch a Wade check center. What's Wade saying?" I go, "I don't know. He's from uh, Louisiana. I don't know what the hell he says." So it was, <laughs> you know the mentality. But as a United Nations players, you learn 
in the United States and different countries, you learn so much and how people viewed things. It was a whole different ball game. So uh, that was one of the things, uh, sorry for getting us off track, but that was one of the things is in baseball, you're a team, you're a unit. It's back when I played, it was about winning personal stats didn't mean, you know, mean anything. You want to be a 280 hitter on a world series team or a 290 hitter on one losing. Now, if you're 280 or 290, now you're, you know, one of the top in the games, but it was about winning and being a team and unifying as a group. Urban legend or fact, uh, crocodile Dundee knife under your uniform. No, no, no. I, I, I had a Bowie <laughs> knife that, uh, so that would be legend or not fact, but I had a Bowie knife. Sid Fernandez, he used to hog hunt with it in Hawaii and they would jump on the hogs and, and knife them. So he did that. Well, that was my hat rack and everyone needs a place to put their gamer. So I pounded that into the, uh, well, kind of threw it into, but the the wood, and you, it was a hat rack. So it was a nice Bowie knife, but I carried a little, it was a little butterfly-type knife in my pocket because you're down there in the bullpen. What are you doing? We're down there whittling, you know, making a few things. So everyone had one in their pocket. That was no big deal. <laughs> We're down there whittling. <laughs> yeah, you got to whittle something, you know. You make a little, like, <laughs> like a handle for a drawer or something or, you know, a little stick figure. So everyone does that. You know that. I know that. Yeah, I'm a whittler. <laughs> 96 you signed with the Orioles uh, 31 saves follow that up 97 another all-star appearance uh, 45 saves uh, tell me about your time oh. in Baltimore did you enjoy Baltimore uh, I did it was uh, different uh, Luke our Davey called me up and said do uh, you want to come to Baltimore American League. I go, well, it's American League. And he goes, I'm putting the Mets bullpen back together. I said, so Roger ended up, I think it was 96 and 97, and Jesse was down there. I said, okay. I said, um, he goes, well, what's going to take to sign you? I go, you know it's fair, Davey. I said, you're my first manager. I said, you know, we're going to shake hands and say I'm signed with you or I'm not signed with you. And um, so he called me back and he said, uh, they can get you this. I said, okay, I'm signing. And uh, so I went there. It was, um, you know, you, you're, so the American League was, you know, a lot different. Uh, we had, you know, Cal was there and Ripken Jr. is, you know, so he kind of seen everyone, knew everyone. So, you know, you lean on him a lot, just his knowledge. But we had a Sam Palazzo also uh, came and was third base coach. Davey brought him with us. And I, I played minor league under Sam and also, you know, in the big leagues because Lou Pinnell had him as our third base coach in, in Baltimore. So Sam knew me and that was good. And so you get a little familiarity. And uh, we were in 96 and 97, we were one hit two years in a row for being in the world series. Uh, and it was, we beat the Yankee, we beat the Yankees and, and then lost, or we, lo- we beat Indians, lost the Yankees. And then we beat uh, the Yankees and lost Indians two years in a row. We were one hit away, but uh, it was, you know, we turned it around. I mean, I, I think they had one season over 500 in the previous, like, 15 or 10 or something. It was – when we came in, Davey said it's a three- to five-year process, and we did it the first year. Unbelievable players. I mean, he, you know, he brought in players. Bobby Benilla came in for a year, and uh, we had um, – uh, you know, Harold was there the second year, Harold Baines. But, uh, did, had, was Albert uh, Bell there yet, the or did he year. come later? What's that? 
did Albert Bell play with you, or was that later he went to Baltimore? I forget. No, that was later. We had uh, our okay. DH was uh, Eddie Murray. Oh, okay. Uh, in 96, and then Harold came in in 97, I believe. But it was uh, – the ending wasn't as – wasn't pleasant. For, I mean, playing there was unbelievable. You're kind of like a middle city, 45 minutes from D.C. where a lot of people work. The train was right outside Camden. You know, you're – Three hours from New York, we used to we took a bus up to New York. Why go to the airport and spend that time uh, when we played? And so Philly uh, wasn't, I mean, because of the National League. But the ending was rough because I planned on resigning there, and uh, they ended up, you know, getting rid of Davey. I mean, it was, uh, you know, from not being 500 and one hit away two years in a row from uh, – going to the world series and okay, we're going to, he didn't get far enough. And then, you know, it was a comment the owner made, it was in the paper, but you know, like he said about me and talking to Davey and he said, you know, he should just shut up and pitch is what came out. I said, apparently the owner doesn't know me well enough because it, it's about loyalty. And so no problem, you know, just go to another team and then go to Toronto and then get traded to San Diego. But it was, uh, I mean, we were, we had turned and we were winning and the fans were full. It was unbelievable of what we had for two years there. And I wish it would have been seen as this is a step in a great direction instead of we didn't make it. We were one hit two years in a row. I mean, you could say also a pitch, but as a pitcher, I would say it's the hit. Uh, but one hit two years in a row. You know, regular, you know, nine innings is from turning a franchise completely around in such a short period of time from not winning much to, you know, I think we were 96, 97 wins, something like that. I mean, there was somewhere up there. I don't know the stats, but it was unbelievable. And to have that, you know, then get rid of Davey. And I mean, there were some good managers after that, but all of a sudden they go back to under 500. Uh, but for the fans and stuff, they hadn't had it for so long. And that's like when the Cubs won the World Series, the fans haven't so long. I mean, even though they're postseason, uh, I think the year before. But it was, it was, uh, oh, it was just the excitement of the city and everything. The two years was, that was something, you know, you, you felt proud. I mean, like with you in Seattle. I mean, here you're going and, all of a sudden we're winning these games and the team. And I mean, it was unbelievable. I mean, down here in Vancouver, it was, you know, Mariner, this Mariner, that, and being able to just the winning and, and the next year winning and winning. Um, but to be able to do that for a city, there's a, a pride factor there. And, you know, guys, you know, are you going to go out? No, no, no. I don't want to let the city down uh, beside your team. And that was, uh, you know, a great part of, you know, I haven't been back there since I played against them, but it was just because it's on the East Coast. But that's a a good feeling to where you know there's you're changing kind of a city, and I'm sure you had the same feeling. Yeah, it 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 was awesome, and and you go back, you know, to go back years later, and it's just not the same. Mariners caught a little bit of a of 
lightning in a bottle, I think this year. And for the first time in a lot of years, uh, I saw some true, real excitement game. You know, it came down to the wire for them getting in the postseason. Obviously, the Mariners longest franchise that haven't been back to the postseason. But I remember my time at, at certain places. Cincinnati in the mid 90s was was kind of electric. We were really good on those Davy teams. The one year I got to play in Atlanta. 99 uh but that was that you know the year the the decade of of that great maddox smoltz glavin so they were used to winning going to the postseason but that early Mm -hmm. 2000s city of seattle i've never played anywhere like it where it was a you know a monday night playing a last place team and there's fifty thousand or whatever it held and there was a buzz and you know what i'm talking about when you talk about that buzz when you come to the ballpark you can't really explain you can't really explain it but it's just something a little bit different than you're used to because we all, you know, we play on sometimes not so great teams, but we go on the road and it might be a packed house. But at your own house, when it's packed, there's something special going on. It's just different. And you have to kind of to live it to, to know what it's actually like. Um, 98, you head over to Toronto. And like you said, you get traded to the Padres. You end up going to the World Series. Uh, I believe that's your third time you've gone to the world series mm-hmm. i got to play you mentioned tony gwynn and man what a hitter you know other than other than than watching barry bonds uh in that in that early 2000s and and what he was doing as a hitter i was just absolutely in awe uh best hitter i've ever seen and i got to play for him for one year a couple of years later in 2000 was was tony gwynn mm-hmm. but how was that 98 season and i want to get into a little bit before i let you go uh you know, we there's so much made of of surgery nowadays, and oh yeah, just go get the Tommy John. Just go get the Tommy John. You'll be back in a year. Everything's great. You had rotator cuff surgery in '99, and and I just want to talk about the do's and the ins and the outs of the surgery. And sometimes they go great, sometimes they don't heal right. But it's not a done deal. And I think nowadays we just think, yeah, just get cut. You'll come back throwing harder. There's a little more to it than that. I want you to touch on that a little bit too. But tell me a little bit about that 98 season and and going back to the World Series with the Padres. Well, coming over is the team needed a left-handed setup guy. And so I was a closer, and when I came over, I uh, was traded. And, I mean, you guys, had, the team was rocked. It was ready to go. It was all the position, all the box are checked, and they needed a lefty in the pen. And so I came over and didn't know if I was just going to pitch the eighth and Trev, Trevor Hoff in the ninth or whatever. Well, they had me as a setup guy. I've never been a setup guy before. People think, oh, you're still relief pitching. No, 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 I've never been a setup guy. So I was out there pitching, you know, to one hitter and then being pulled out and stuff. So that was a different philosophy. My philosophy was also different is if I knew I might be coming out, I'm going at you. I'm not going to pitch around you. I mean, we're going after you, but it was, I mean, we, you know, we lost in the, uh, we won. And then, you know, in the world series, we lost uh, the first game with New York. If we could have took that, um, that was a close game until late in the game, but, you know, that's one thing about playing against the Yankees. If you can take that first game, they got a lot of pressure on them. I mean, the, you know, the five newspapers are burying them. Uh, so it was uh, – but as a team, it was – I mean, you know that, top to bottom, it was loaded starters, hitters. Uh, I played with Tony before in 92. So when I came back over, I played. But it was um, – you know, you get to the World Series, and it's uh, it's harder than people think. And, well, you didn't – 
win it. Yeah, one team has to win and one has to lose, but did you lose or did the other team beat you? I think they beat us. Uh, and uh, that was just, uh, you know, it's just one of those things. It, was, it wasn't from lack of effort on anyone's part. Yeah, and and you make a good point. It's you know I was lucky enough to go to World Series and never won one, and and I watch these postseasons every year. And and when that it, the last team standing when they hoist that that trophy, I just think, wow, that is so cool because they're so hard to get. And and I'm sure you have as well as me. I, I played with a lot of great great players that never got that opportunity, it, even to go to a World Series, let alone win one. They are mm-hmm. they're they're a lot tougher than than people think. Um, you retire after the 2000 season, I believe. Is that accurate? Uh, well, no, because remember 2001. I, well, you don't remember. I signed a minor league deal with the Mariners. Pat Gillick, my GM. With oh, Baltimore. that's right. That's right. So you don't officially retire. The last time you pitched in the big league. Right. You didn't pitch in the big leagues after 2000. Last time I picked the big league was 98. Right. Right. Because in 99, uh, we went down to Mexico and played and I was warming up and my arm was done. So I had the, the surgery was supraspinatus tendon. And looking back, what it was is I threw what I call the Vulcan change, which was after Spock, but I locked my wrist. And looking back, that, the last eight inches of deceleration on the arm, because my wrist was locked, it put all the pressure on the tendon. So it was, you know, slowly tearing apart. And the surgery I had was experimental, never been done on a throwing athlete in any sport. And... When I came in 90, uh, so I got that in 99, uh, and it was in June, I think, because I was trying to rehab it, you know, and as a player, you think you're doing good and you're not, but your brain is telling you you are what you're seeing. So got surgery in, um, in spring of, uh, of, uh, 2000, I was, you know, throwing, you know, good and hard. But the problem was when they did the surgery, I said, what's the rehab and, uh, 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 Lewis Yoakum. He said, you're, you're writing it down. We are, we can give you stuff from other, but not the surgery. So I was actually writing the rehab for how you train that injury. And so I got it and it was, I mean, I was throwing hard, but it was that last deceleration. So he said he wanted to go on again and see it and, you know, and like, you know, that was realistic career ender, but it was, uh, now you could get that surgery. And if you did the rehab, that I had among others is you could come back from it, but, uh, everything's changed over 20 years. Like now the Tommy John, you know, you got high school kids and grade school kids and stuff getting Tommy John. It's like, man, the one you know, I've, I was raised once you cut, you know, you never know what's going to happen, but, um, was playing softball. My arm got strong and, and so I signed in the minors and it was that yeah, Gilk was my GM in Baltimore. Uh, and he was previous, I believe with Philly, uh, well, Toronto, he got the world set in Toronto. So, you know, I, I threw, and then I went down to triple A and I mean, even the rehab down there, I mean, I'm doing pull-ups on a treadmill with dumbbells, but we were stuck in, we were in new Orleans for the uh, playoffs championships. And that's when nine 11 happened. So it was, uh, I talked to Pat and I said, based on everything, I'm not going to be ready. I mean, I'm, I, I'm always been honest. And I said, don't even look at me as an option. He goes, well, what do you think? I go, I know I'm the days I have to train. This is done. So we ended up, you know, flying up to uh, everyone got back to Seattle, but 
So that kind of ended up. And then 92 was, you know, another team. I went down and spring our instructionally with our spring training with the Yankees extended because uh, Billy Connors and my pitch coach in 93 was there. And so uh, it was, uh, or excuse me, 2002, I'm sorry. Uh, and so it was like, yeah, he says, it's just not there for you. I said, okay, well, you know, gave my best. And so then it was, you know, you're time to play softball. <laughs> Martial arts. I know you've been a connoisseur a lot of years. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. Uh, oh, there's a lot of stories. Uh, biggest thing is, you know, you have to try to be able to defend yourself, uh, to protect yourself. You never know what's going to happen with whoever is across the aisle. Do they have the same values of you? And, you know, in the Northwest, I mean, people, you know, don't go mess with a guy that's a logger who's been carrying a chainsaw every day up and down hills. I mean, it's not going to be come out good for you. <laughs> so <laughs> it's just, uh, you know, you, everyone dabbles in a little bit of that and, uh, fluidity of, of fluidity of arm movement and stuff is to build strength and stuff. And, um, I mean, it's one of them things like everyone, you know, you defend yourself the best you can and, um, hopefully you never get in a fight and it's just like, it's not worth it. I mean, what, what about didn't, uh, what Milwaukee where the guy punches a wall and breaks his hand and possibly cost Milwaukee, you know, going to the world series. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of their top relievers. That just happened, I think, here a couple weeks ago. So yeah, I think. Or, so I, I mean, I think it was away from the field. It was like after he showered and gone home, he just got angry again. Oh, I, I oh mean, they it, won, and he went home and and hit the wall or something. But yeah, yeah, that was it. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But it, that's the kind of thing that you know, like coming up. Davey said, if you're going to hit the wall, hit it with your right hand. We can also a glove on that. I mean, That's you right. know, but it's, but you know, a little thing like that could cost maybe the Milwaukee Brewers, the world series, you know, one, one thing that happens, you know, and you, you do that playing ball, the freak injuries. I mean, here, uh, do you have, do we have time for me to tell a Cal story in New York? Oh yeah. Okay. 97. We're playing there and Cal it's getaway. And they, and you know, they load that truck ahead of time. Well, Cal runs over to the, and he's playing third in 97, and he goes to catch a ball in the uh, camera well by third base. Well, he takes a gash out of his, his thought, out of his uh, shin. I mean, it's a chunk. So I think he finished the inning, and then the game's over. Well, they're unloading the truck that's packed to try to get to the airport to get the surgical stuff off. And then the Yankees team doctor gets it and sewed up. Well, the next time we go to New York, there's like a 12-inch padding around that whole thing. I mean, it was like bubble wrap. <laughs> but <laughs> Cal might have had to lose a streak because of uh, hitting the camera well. And, you know, then what, what happened? I mean, how many, you know, him playing, I mean, come on, how many guys took him out? How many did? How many? I mean, unbelievable. He strapped him on the next day. I mean, you see him with ice, and it's like, it's like, okay, well, see you tomorrow. Uh, hopefully you're in the game, but it's, you know, little tweaks here and there. And it's how it's many guys to me. would take a day off. But in our days, it was strap them on. Let's go. 
It, it's amazing to me with the Cal Ripken and the streak. As a young player, I wanted to be Cal. You know, and I, I remember I used to go round and round with Davey Johnson. Matter of fact, he'd say, Brett, you need a day off once in a while. I said, I never need a day off. I want to play like Cal plays. I play every day. It is years later when I get a little experience. Yeah, I can use that day off about now. But it's amazing to me, Randy. It's, it's like I had a sprained ankle one time. In, in Toronto or not in Toronto in Montreal. I mean, I tweaked mm-hmm. it good. I caught it. I caught a seam and on that old, you know, that old turf that was that so old thin. crappy turf. And it was one of those where it buckles you like, Oh, and I, and I, and I rolled that thing. I remember coming in after the game and the trainers look at it, it start, you know, it starts swelling up. I had a pair of cowboy boots that I'd worn to the ballpark that day. And I said, all right, I'm playing tomorrow. So I go home to my hotel and, and my brain starts working. I'm thinking, all right, every time in my life that I've sprained my ankle, when I go to sleep, I wake up the next morning and that thing's like a, like a, like there's a bowling ball in my ankle and it always hurts. So what am I going to do? <laughs> yep. I'm not going to sleep tonight. So it doesn't swell up. I stayed up all <laughs> night in Montreal. That's how bad I wanted to play the next day. And I get mm-hmm. to the ballpark and, and, uh, Go to the trainers and they said, what, what do you got in mind, Brett? And I said, oh, I'm playing. They said, oh, you are. You know, and it's almost like I was a little kid and they were my parents. Like, all right, let him touch uh-huh. the stove. So he realizes, they, I said, wrap that baby up. They wrapped it as tight as they could. They got, you know, I put that, sh- my, my spike on. It felt good. I'm like, yeah, I'll be fine. They said, what we're going to do is we're going to go out on the turf and we're just going to, you know, run a couple sprints just to loosen it up, see if we're ready to go for the game. I took about three steps on that turf. <laughs> And I'm telling you, there was no chance I could play. And I think about Cal, all those years, you didn't have a sprained ankle one time because you can't physically play with this. That's why that streak to me is so unbelievable. It's amazing. Oh, yeah. Well, in 96, I believe it was in the first by the All-Star break, or I think it was in June. Davey had given Cal more innings off than he had the whole streak up to that point. Because they would just throw him. So, Davey, you know, we're down by five. Cal gets in at bat, you're out, you know, in the eighth or ninth inning. Or he would give him, and, and he said, and that's what Davey was about winning. He said, you know, Cal, uh, you know, asked him, hey, uh, why give me so many outs? He goes, because I want you ready in October. And it was, okay. But it was, he was, it was like he didn't know how to do it. I, you know, like Keith Hernandez with the Mets. It was never when guys are playing all the time. Some uh, coaches like to give or managers like to give a day off with another day off, but it kills the guys. And so Keith Hernandez, he would sit next to Davey if he had a day off. After that, he would just uh, Keith, you keep playing. <laughs> I don't want you yeah. sitting next to me because right. you know. But there's managers that get a day off and another two. But if you're used to playing all the time, it messes your schedule up. You know that. I mean. You take yeah. one day off, you know, night to a day game or something, okay, but two days in a row off, the next game, you're you're tight. Uh, I want to get into what you're doing now. I know you do a lot of charity work, uh, a lot of fundraising. Mm-hmm. Clark College, uh, the college you went to, is done. The baseball program was done in 92. You brought it back to life through your, your fundraising. As of 2011, they were playing again. Um, talk about what you're doing now. 
Uh, well, right now I'm sitting at the shop where I had to buy some bar oil because I from a chainsaw because I got to cut down. We had a storm come through here a few weeks ago that lost some big maples and stuff. So that's what I'm doing now. But no, I, a lot of charity work, uh, more outdoor charities. I mean, we do uh, Today Foundation. I started that in '93. The organization dedicated to athletics and youth, and it's more local. But we give a helping hand, people that help themselves, and then we donate also, uh, kind of like get them over the hump. Uh, but, you know, a lot of uh, outdoor doing, you know, do, uh, you know, fence poles and stuff for wildlife. I mean, you know, whether people like hunting or not, the hunting pays for the conservation of the animals that people get to go out and view and stuff. So there's a lot of work with, you know, Ducks Unlimited, Rocky Mountain Elks Foundation, Mule Deer Foundation, Safari Club International, and on and on. Uh, Turkey Foundation, Wild Chief. I mean, it's, um, and, you know, putting boots on the ground and helping. And a lot of the charities, I mean, we're working with uh, a lot of youth groups and stuff and independent teams. You know, they're all looking to raise funds and uh, help them with auctions and stuff. You, you, you attend so many and do so many, you know. There's not a the basics are the same whether it's a six thousand dollar event or a five hundred thousand dollar event and you know there's other things but the basic of how you do things if you keep that template in line it makes it a lot easier so I help a lot with the organization of them with different groups so that they can have more successful events but it's busy you know uh, once you retire you know never really owned any property up until then I bought you know a little bit of land here and there but. It's uh, just projects. It seems like, uh, you know, ran into you. Heck, we had to go do a charity event for Marty Brenneman <laughs> Cincinnati for his Hall of Fame induction. Yeah. What separates ninth inning guy from the rest of the bullpen? Well, one thing that a lot of people don't realize is that the closer – is the only position in baseball where the guy who potentially can take his job has an audition. And that's normally the guy who's pitching the seventh or the eighth. You know, the guy backing up Cal Ripken, I think he had 10 years in the big leagues and didn't play. You know, hey, I'll get him on a day off. Okay, I'm ready. <laughs> you know? Right. Uh, Wally Pip, I mean, Lou Gehrig behind him, but... In the eighth inning, you got someone to cover your butt. And I just shake my head these days, but the 280 hitter sitting on the bench is batting in the ninth. You'll figure out defense later if you can tie a game. But you got no one on your backside. In the eighth inning, there's always just in case I got someone to cover me. And the ninth inning, everything that's led up to that game, you could have all the stats in the world. But everything leading up to that game, whether a guy, uh, a second baseman, I mean, uh, you played, I think, most of your career there, but a second baseman, he might have hit two home runs and having a bad fielding day. Or he might be 0 for 3 or 3 punch outs, but he's unbelievable fielding. In the ninth inning, you have to calculate all that in when you walk in. Because everything that led up to that point is you're getting the best off the bench of the other. I mean, there's no 180 left-handed hitter as a lefty I'm going to face. They're bringing in their biggest stick on the bench. Uh, positions, we'll figure them out if we tie the game. But everything that led up to that game, how a catcher is calling the game, how's an up calling the game, uh, 
how guys are fielding, how they're feeling, uh, if a guy's a little dinged up. All that comes into play in the ninth, and it's it's on the line. So all that happens. I mean, a guy can uh, boot an error. I had him before, you know, blown save where a guy gets an error and um, blown save and got a loss. You know, that Louie is on yours forever. Guy boots the ball, they don't say, remember when you lost that, but uh, or made the error. But that loss is on you forever. And a lot of guys can't handle that. They can't handle that, you know, you pitch one bad game and the next day you pitch a good game, but you lose because something happening. It's you're not protected. It's it's your job to go there and everything that brought the game to that point. I mean, like is in play. I mean, I said a blown save is you didn't score enough runs to keep me on the bench. But in that ninth inning, it's everything to where when you walk in is in play. And the more of that, that you can analyze and look at without, you know, coaches telling you the better off it is. I mean, perfect example, excuse me, when I went to Baltimore, I always shaded normally my, uh, on left-handed hitters, I would shade my, uh, the opposite field. So if you're a right-handed hitter, left center was open. If you're left-handed, right center was open. And Brady Anderson, I moved him and ball hit right to him. He goes, I go, because if they're going to pull me, they're going to pull it right to the right fielder. If they hit it in that gap, it's a homer. Uh, And so... You know, it was just one of them things he's like, okay. And the bench coach was in, all in flustered. And Cal goes, where do you want me to play? I go, wherever they hit it, you go stand there, Cal. <laughs> <laughs> he knows better than anyone on that league. But it's everything is that ninth inning. And it, the crowd, I mean, I kind of like to pitch away. Because when that crowd's hyped, a change-up with a full count or with two strikes on a hitter, a lot of hitters got overly aggressive. The ones that it didn't bother, you still had to work your tail off to try to get them out. You know, and that's where an extra run in the sixth inning or the seventh and make it a two or three run game. Boy, that means so much more to a bullpen and a starting pitcher. You don't have to make every pitch perfect. And as a hitter, yeah, a three run lead, let me try to take and see if I can take this in the stands. But a one run game, I'm trying to get on. I'm trying to manufacture runs for a win. But everything of that game in the ninth inning, it's on the line, the crowd, the fans, uh, how the hitter's doing, what's he been up to, what's his team, what's his coach's strategy. And it's it's going to go one way or another, except maybe a tie and you got to go extra innings, but it normally happens in the ninth, and, you know, you're part of that good and bad. Very cool. Randy Myers, uh, it was a pleasure. I, I appreciate you coming on the Boone Podcast, and, like we do each and every time we bring in Dan Levy for a question from the fans. Dan? Oh, Brett. Yes, sir. Hi, Randy. This one comes from Jill in Kentucky, and she wants to know this. Randy, do you think we'll ever see another threesome like the Nasty Boys again? I don't think you will. You've had some that have came from other people you know, other teams, but there was never three closers in that role. And young being, I think Norma Diz were two years in the big league at that time, maybe three. And I was coming over, you know, closing really two years, long relief, uh, two closing and coming in four. So I think we were four and two, but too many times now guys are getting injured and stuff. It's about velocity and all that. And like Norm, for an example, Norm used to tell the hitters what's coming. 
Booney knows this. He would say, here's a splitter, 96, see if you can hit it. Fastball, see if you can hit it. And Dibs was, I mean, Dibs would be throwing 107, 108 now based on how the guns are tweaked. I mean, Dibs was legit 98 to 100. Uh, and it was a heavy ball. And myself, I just, you know, like to paint the outside corner more or less, uh, try to get the guys out. Uh, so it was three guys that ended up being closers and being successful that at one time were together. And I don't see that coming up from a minor league or a trade. I mean, I was traded for Johnny Franco, you know, one of the best, if not the best left-hander ever. I mean, he was the top of the game and, you know, it was a salary move and they can say anything they want, you know, but in my mind it was, uh, but to get together like that, I don't think you would ever have that because with contracts and stuff where guys have to be in the big leagues now in three years or four years. Uh, but just the, however people say the, uh, the world came together. There's other words people use, but for that moment, I don't see that happen. not saying it won't, but you know, it's, it just with guys throwing consistently over 95 and each having a unique style and unique pitching philosophy, I don't see that happening. Uh, possibly, I mean, you know, rules are made to be broken, uh, or not rules, uh, but stats are made to be broken. But I just don't see that in this day because someone's going to pick that player off or not be able to afford them with some teams. Well, we want to thank you for coming on this podcast, Mr. Myers. It was great having you on. Thank you very much, and hopefully I didn't bore too many people and uh, got a little bit of information, but we had Booney, so we knew uh, we could always count on him to uh, give some knowledge when the guest doesn't have it. Mailbag. All right, Boone, you know that sound, don't you? It's mailbag time, Dan. Let's get it done. Mailbag time. All right, this one comes from Jason in Fort Myers. Brett, can you describe the pain of a fouling ball off your shin? Um, never really happened to me. Um, I, ne- I, I just, whatever my swing, however it was, I never fouled balls off my foot. That's why I never wore a shin guard. So I don't really know. Don't think it feels that great. I've been hit by a lot of pitches. I've been hitting the elbow. I've been hitting the ankle, but I never fought, fouled a ball off my foot. I think ever. So, uh, Yeah. Interesting. I, I, I don't know. I think it's just technique. I think it's your swing path. Uh, you know, and some guys are very prone to that. And you see the guys with the shin guards. They're fouling it off their foot all the time. I just never was one of those guys. All right. Back into the mailbag we go. This one comes from Jeff in Tampa. Brett, how hard is it to catch a pop fly under a dome? It is. Well, it depends on the dome. It depends on the dome. Um, some are tougher than others. Really tough was the Metrodome in Minnesota. Uh, they, the Twins don't play there anymore, but they did for a lot of years. And it was so white. It seems like there were no seams. So you'd look up and it just looked like a like a day where there was just white cloud cover. So that ball going up into that dome, you really had to work for it. I mean, you'd go out early sometimes and work on picking up the ball. And it was really, when you'd pull into Minnesota, I'd always talk to my outfielders. I said, listen, when that ball goes up, just make sure one of us sees it. Because whoever doesn't, you know, it's not like a normal uh, 
a normal game where, you know, a night game, it goes up into the night sky. It's easy to see the white ball. But in those domes, it, we were definitely aware and and uh, to just have a lot more communication, not only with your infielders, but your outfielders. All right. Well, that's going to do it for the Brett Boone podcast. Thanks, Randy Myers, for jumping on with us. My name is Dan Levy, and I'm the technical director and producer of the Boone podcast. Executive producer is Rich Herrera. Digital content gets handled by Liz Landry. Please share the Boone podcast with neighbors and friends and make sure you subscribe to the Boone podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. And while you're at it, give it a five-star rating and share your feelings of the podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Boom Podcast, I'm Dan Levy. Thanks again for listening. We'll do it again next time. See ya.